going to be looking at John chapter 12 in our continuation of the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19. And we're going to see Jesus is entering Jerusalem for the last time before his death and his crucifixion. And as he's entering the city, there's a great enthusiasm, an overwhelming enthusiasm as the crowds hail him as king. The crowds, his disciples, the Pharisees, all seem to understand Jesus riding on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem is presenting himself to Israel as Israel's long-awaited Messiah king. They understood that. However, Jesus knows by accepting their acclamations, the snowball effect begins. And in just a few days, it's going to lead to his crucifixion and death. You see, people understood Jesus is Messiah King. But they failed to understand what kind of Messiah King would he be, world conqueror or a humble king? Who came to die for lost sinners. Let's look at John 12. Verses 12 through 19. The next day. Large crowds had come to the feast. Heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees. And went out to meet him. Crying out. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. And Jesus found the young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard he had done these signs. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to give us ears to hear as we seriously listen to your word today. Holy Spirit, open our understanding to the Christ of Scripture that we may truly worship him as God. Savior, King, and Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. There has been, there's always been people who claim to know Jesus, but in reality, believing in a different Jesus, not the Jesus of Scripture. To give you an example by way of illustration, if I say I'm an, an accomplished singer, it doesn't make me an accomplished singer, does it? And the proof of that, that I really can't sing, is when I open my mouth and everybody's holding their ears and there's dogs howling at the door. And there are so many so-called Christians, groups, who hail Jesus as Messiah, however, they're not hailing the Jesus of Scripture. For example, Jehovah Witnesses. This organization claims that Jesus Christ is really Michael the Archangel. Christian science. This organization teaches that Jesus is a man. However, Christ is an ideal. 
Latter-day Saints, Mormonism. The teaching from this organization is that Jesus is the first of many spirit children of Elohim. Elohim. Health and Wealth Ministries. To these teachers, Jesus is like a Santa Claus who on demand provides his people with health and financial prosperity. And even the Roman Catholic Church has some doctrines that they teach that veer away from the true Christ of the Bible. This organization teaches Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was not sufficient to save us from our sins. You also need baptism, the sacraments, and so on. And all of these I just mentioned, and more, claim to hail Jesus as king, but in reality, deny the Christ of the Bible. They worship Jesus on their terms, not God's. As we go through the Old Testament, when Israel moved into the Promised Land, they had to fight many battles to gain control of the land that God had give them, gave, gave them. But God was with them, as He had promised. He promised to be with them, and He was with them. And He led many, many of them to, to miraculous victories. It was clear that they would not have defeated their enemies unless God was with them. And eventually, peace did come to Israel. As you read through the book of Joshua, you'll see that. And during this time, God was their king. God was Israel's king. That was called the theocracy, where God ruled and reigned over Israel. And the people were led by judges. And God chose these judges to save them from their enemies. They were moral and spiritual leaders of the nation. But a time came when two judges, Joel and Abijah, the sons of the prophet Samuel. Samuel was a great prophet, but he had two Creepy sons. They didn't live honestly. They were taking bribes and perverted justice. You can read that in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And the people were angry. And and used the two corrupt prophets as an excuse for demanding a king. That was just an excuse. It was a smokescreen. Nonetheless, they demanded a king. A human king they could see and show off. And presumably... Control. That's the kind of king they wanted. And Samuel was offended. And he went to the Lord. And the Lord told him this. He said, they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me from being their king. And Samuel warned them what would happen if they had a king. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's advice. And continued to demand the king. So finally he said, you want a king? You're going to get a king. 1 Samuel 8.22. And life had been good. God had been good. But the people of Israel wanted to control their own lives. And we see time and time again. Things would have been, would have been so much better for Israel. If they had just submitted to God's plan. Well here's the nation again. Once again. Wanting a king of their liking. A king they could see, a king they could show off, a king they could control, a king who would be their political and military deliverer. That's what they were concerned about. And here's my proposition to you tonight as we go through this text. We need to worship Christ, yes, as King of kings and Lord of lords, but on His terms, not ours. And as we read our text today, There were many things that the crowd and the Jewish leaders said that were right. And we're going to go, you could see that on your outline. There were many things that they said right. However, their hearts and motives were less than pure. 
Today we're going to look at four things they said that were right, that were actually right. But as we investigate the scriptures, we will quickly see how wrong and foolish they really were. The four points are this. They had a right proclamation. They had the right king. They had a right witness. And there was even a right prophecy. First one is the right proclamation. Did you know that it's possible that we can praise Christ with the right words, but with the wrong idea of who Jesus is and why he came? Let's read verses 12 and 13 again. The next day, the large crowds, or the large crowd that had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And I want want you to get the picture, this picture in your mind. John tells us, first of all, the next day. Which is the day after the supper at Bethany, which I I preached this a couple of, probably two months ago. When he... The day of the supper um, at Bethany with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, when Mary anointed Jesus and was preparing Jesus for his burial. And it was probably Sunday, more than likely it was Sunday uh, of Passion Week, which is traditionally known as, which we will celebrate in a few weeks, Palm Sunday. And And a massive crowd of pilgrims who traveled from many places to celebrate the Passover came to Jerusalem. They did these pilgrimages three times a year, the Feast of the Feast of Passover, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Pentecost. Well, this was the Feast of Ta- uh, Passover. And the, Jerusalem's population was about 100,000. That's a lot of people for a city that size. But when you add in the pilgrims, you have this enormous amount of people of upwards of 1 million. Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, said there could have been as much as 2,700,000. Now, even if his numbers were inflated, that is an enormous crowd, to say the least. So you have this huge crowd, and they pick up palm branches and begin to cry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. I mean, you've got to picture this. Crowds just flocking around Jesus, waving palm branches. And, they, and palm branches, <clears throat> which is in the Old Testament, was not really associated with Passover, but with the Feast of Tabernacles. But by the time of Jesus, palm branches became a nationalistic Jewish symbol because two centuries earlier during the intertestamental period, which is called the silent years, 400 silent years after Malachi, before the New Testament started, you have this intertestamental period, and there was no prophet speaking. But God was still at work, we know that. So, during that time, the Syrians had taken control of Jerusalem and the temple. And there was a revolt led by the Jews. They were angry at this. And there was a revolt led by this man called Simon the Hammer or Simon the Maccabean. That was the, some of you may remember, the Maccabean period. And they recaptured Jerusalem, led by this man Simon. And the temple, they recaptured the temple. And, and they drove the Syrians out. And this led to a celebration. And they entered this, the, the city with uh, praise and palm branches. Because they were happy about the victory. They got their city back and they got their temple back. And at this point in Jewish history, the palm branch became a significant and sign and symbol of military, military victory. And the crowd probably had this victory in mind of the Maccabean revolt. 
uh, when they waved their palm branches. They hoped Jesus was the great messianic military king who would free them from Roman oppression. You see, that's the kind of king they had in mind. This glorious king. By the way, the Jewish people still have that king. They're still waiting for the return of the Messiah to come gloriously. They didn't, they, I should say, they don't know that he had to suffer and die first. So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and the crowds are crying, Hosanna! Now, Hosanna in the Greek means, it's a transliteration of a Hebrew word. Transliteration it really is more concerned about pronunciation, where translation is concerned about uh, interpretation of a word, not the pronunci- pronunciation. In other words, our English word Hosanna comes from a Greek word, Hosanna, which comes from a Hebrew word, Hosanna, which is really basically the same thing, and which means save now or save I pray. It was a term that the Jews were very familiar with because it came from the group of Psalms called the Hallel, which consists of Psalms 113 through 118. And during the major Jewish festivals, the temple choir sang these Psalms called the Hallel every morning. And this Hebrew phrase, Hosanna, is found in one solitary place in the whole Old Testament. Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. It originally meant a cry for help. But over the centuries, it changed its meaning. From a cry for help to mean salvation Salvation, salvation has come. It became a shout of hope and rejoicing. If a person falls from a dock into the water and doesn't know how to swim, he or she will cry out, Hosanna, save me now, please. That's the old Hosanna. But when it came, what it came to mean is if a person fell into the water and you saw a lifeguard coming to rescue you, your heart would be comforted with hope. And joy as you see your salvation on the way and you might cry out, salvation has come. So the term Hosanna went from a cry for help to a shout of hope and rejoicing. The crowd also quoted Psalm 118 verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jewish and Christian scholars understand this psalm to have messianic implications. And the crowd welcoming Jesus understood this and confirmed their hope that he was the Messiah. They were expecting, especially in the context of the next phrase, even the king of Israel, which, by the way, is only found in John's gospel. So the crowd shouted the right proclamation. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's beautiful, wonderful, great acclamation. However, their right words, their right proclamation was accompanied by the wrong idea of the person, the work of Jesus Christ. What were they expecting? They were expecting a military warrior. A Messiah who would free them from the yoke of bondage, from Roman oppression. That's what they were expecting. And I would not be surprised if they also expected a Santa Claus or a genie type of Messiah who could take care of their physical needs as he did when they fed the multitude with a few small fish and a few small loaves of bread. And when he healed the blind and the crippled, yes, that's the kind of king they wanted, the military warrior and a genie. 
when Christ came to my, into my life around 1978, there was a strong word of faith movement, which is very strong to this day. This is also known as the health and wealth prosperity movement. And many had the right proclamation of Jesus, but the wrong idea of who he was and why he came. As a matter of fact, one of the TV evangelists of the Word of Faith movement has in big bold letters above where he preaches, Jesus is Lord. And that's right. Jesus is Lord. That's a right proclamation. But as you investigate his theology, his view of Christ is less than biblical and really blasphemous. And it was during that time that many evangelical churches adopted some of those belief systems. The church I attended also adopted some of its practices and beliefs. I myself dabbled in it, but it was out of ignorance. I remember needing a car and going to a new car dealer and seeing the car I wanted. Well, I laid my hands on the car and I claimed it for myself. I got the car. Although, I had car payments every month. It was a different color than the one I claimed. And if I remember correctly, it was the lower model. I guess I didn't have enough faith to get the one I wanted without payments. Even though I was a believer in Christ, in part, I ignorantly treated Jesus like a genie. See, God knew what I needed. I didn't have to uh, name it and claim it. I didn't need to go to prayer... All I needed to do was really go in prayer and simply ask my Heavenly Father who knows what I need before I even ask. Turn to Matthew 6, 31 to 33. I'm struggling with my voice today, so please excuse me. Jesus emphatically said in Matthew 6, 31 to 33, Therefore, do not be anxious of saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But, it's a big but, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. When I seek King Jesus for who He is, on His terms, with it comes full care and provision from God. Amen. You and I need to worship Christ with the correct understanding of who He is and why He came. So, most of the crowd during Jesus' triumphal entry had the right proclamation, but the wrong view of Him. The second point is the right King. They had the right King. Verses 14 through 16 again. And Jesus found a donkey, a young donkey, and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The, the other gospels do tell us how Jesus found the young donkey and that it was actually Jesus who arranged for the animal. But John omits that part of it, focusing on the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. See, Jesus, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. In essence, he was saying as he rode into Jerusalem, I am the long-awaited Messiah, your king. And the people welcomed him as the victorious king. They had the right king, King Jesus. But when Jesus 
when Jesus was before Pilate, if you remember, remember, he's king. He never denied his kingship. In John 18, verse 37, Pilate said to Jesus, so you are king. Jesus never denied it, right? He said, you say correctly that I am king. And in Revelation 19, 16, the apostle John says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Paul also calls him King of Kings and Lord of Lords in 1 Timothy 6.15. So yes, Jesus is King. The crowds were correct in their assessment of Jesus. However, kings in ancient times rode on royal horses, not really donkeys. Sometimes royalty rode on donkeys, but most of the time they rode on royal horses with all the garb on the horses. A donkey was associated with humility and peace. And the crowds for sure did not understand this. They still viewed Jesus as the conquering king. And even his disciples at that point viewed Jesus as the conquering king. They did not understand that Jesus had to come into suffering and the cross first before he would enter his glory. So Jesus rode into the city on the slowly donkey self-consciously fulfilling prophecy that we find in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout out loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So this certainly was not the Messiah that people had in mind. They wanted someone to ride into Jerusalem on a war horse and free them from Roman oppression. That was what was on their minds. They wanted a conquering king, not a Messiah who was to come in lowliness, meekness, and humility. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, it was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah, which was prophesied 500 years earlier. Now, if the people had only understood Zechariah's prophecy, they would have not demanded a conquering king, but would have received Jesus, the Messiah, who came to suffer and die for their sins. We need to understand that when Jesus rode into the city, he didn't deny that he was king, but on his terms, which are according to the scriptures. You and I can't trust Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, that he's the king, that the prophets foretold, and the one who humbled himself to the point of death, Even death on a cross, so we might be free from the burden of sin and escape the full wrath of God. Seriously, I I can't tell you how many times I speak with people who claim to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and and acknowledge Him as their King, but go on and on about their agendas, making requests which are really demands, only to be disappointed and angry because Jesus didn't do it their way. I shudder when Christians say, I'm angry at God because I've been faithful and he didn't give me a job or a relationship didn't work out. Or I'm still sick and so on and so on. We as Christians need to be careful of conjuring up a king of our expectations. This is only going to lead to disastrous, disastrous disappointment. Just because we're Christians does not automatically exempt us from misunderstanding Jesus' purpose. Even his disciples, verse 16 tells us they did not understand these things at first. Their understanding was to come. When you're a Christian, your understanding 
grows. It was probably when the disciples were baptized in the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost that they understood Zechariah's prophecy. That God the Father's purpose for Jesus at his first advent was, was to be Savior, not a conqueror. And this wasn't the first time disciples did not understand. In the second chapter of John, the Jews asked Jesus for a sign. Jesus answered and said, starting at verse 19 through 22, he said, to the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples, what? Remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So they had to grow in that. They had to get the, the power of the Holy Spirit to help them to understand that. It took the Holy Spirit filling their hearts and minds to understand the things of God. In John 14, 26, Jesus promised his disciples, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he, what? Will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all the things that I said to you. Also in John 16, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This idea that we can understand spiritual things without the Holy Spirit's illumination is absolutely ludicrous. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to grow in our understanding. When you first become a Christian, you understand very basic that Jesus died for your sins. But then the growing and the understanding comes. And the disciples didn't understand his messianic um, um, entrance into Jerusalem. They didn't understand that at first. They understood, like the rest of the crowd and and the Jews... That, he was, that they wanted a military, military king. A victorious military king. That's what they wanted. <clears throat> we have these good Christian friends of ours who couldn't understand the doctrine of election, which we believe here. That God predestines those he chooses for salvation. Amen. One day they came over for dinner and I was explaining to them what it means and how we have come to understand this doctrine. Well... Well, after dinner, we were discussing this, this doctrine, and, and they, they just couldn't understand it, and they not got mad, but they were like kind of firm with their understanding of it. But they were still our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we didn't divide, and we, didn't, we never you know, made much about it. But that was almost 10 years ago. And we recently, well, I recently saw the wife in the supermarket and we were discussing the plans we had we were discussing plans we were getting together for dinner and to see their house and all of a sudden I mean out of nowhere we were in food town she turned around to me and I mean her eyes got wide bright and she said John I believe in predestination now I understand it now I'd like to say I fell backwards into the shells and all the cans fell on top of me. But that's how shocked I was. I mean, I felt like that's what happened. But that's not what happened. I didn't fall backwards. Inside I did. But she understood. It took her a while, but she finally understood. After growing and getting teaching and 
she finally understood. And I was always vocal about my faith in Christ on my job. And there were times when I was sharing the gospel with my co-workers. Well, there was this one guy, Chuck, who was rather quiet. And, and when I would share Christ with other workers, little did I know, this guy was listening. He was really, really listening. And one day, my friend who was a pastor who used to work with us, he worked part-time with us to supplement his, his salary from the church. <clears throat> he said to me, John, at our service, Chuck gave his testimony about his faith in Christ and said, he said this, now I know what John Verdi was talking about. I mean, I didn't know he was listening. You see, his understanding grew until he came to faith in Christ. But we as Christians also, our understanding grows. We may not understand certain doctrines right now. We may not understand a lot of things, but we grow in it. And he didn't understand right away, but the Holy Spirit eventually enlightened him, and he understood. And And I'm struggling with my voice, so please forgive me. So the crowd had the right proclamation, Hosanna, but the wrong idea of who Jesus was and why he came. They had the right king, but their worship of him was not according to scripture. They had, and the third point is they had the right witness. Witnessing a miracle does not necessarily convince someone that Jesus is the only way whereby a man must be saved. Verse 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued what? To bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. And there were some in the crowd that were there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And there were those who only heard about it from them. And I think we can safely assume if we're familiar with the New Testament... That the wonderful reception of Jesus as he entered Jerusalem was rooted in the miraculous sign of raising a dead man, not in true faith. And you might think, well, how do you know that? Because other parts of scripture reveal that. And that's why we always say here, look at the whole context. Don't just pull out scriptures. For example, in Luke's account of the triumphal entry... He tells us that after Jesus entered Jerusalem and the crowd was in a frenzy over him, the Pharisees were not happy about this fuss they were making over him. And Jesus was grieved from the Pharisees' attitude. And also, he was grieved from the superficiality of most of the people as he approached Jerusalem. And as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept. Listen to what Luke tells us in chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What do you mean, Jesus? We just hailed you as king. They were were hailing him as the wrong king. Listen, Jesus was not excited about the crowd's reception because he knew about the shallowness of their hearts. He knew that in just a few days, this crowd that was saying, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. In a few days they were going to say, crucify him, crucify him. One day they're crying out, Hosanna. The next day they're crying out, crucify him. When it was obvious that Jesus was not going to be their political Messiah, only a few days later they cried out for his death. Cannot the witnessing of a dead man, Lazarus, raised back to life, convince them that Jesus was who he said he was and why he came? No. In Luke 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, when they both died, the rich man was pleading with Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn his brothers about hell where he was. But Abraham told him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, meaning the scriptures, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You mean not even a stunning miracle like bringing dead men back to life will convince someone that Jesus is the Christ who came to save men from their sins? If the scriptures can't, a dead man can't. We live in a day and age where people are so fascinated with the miraculous. They have to see a miracle in order to believe. It's not enough to hear the word of God. It's not enough to hear the word of God and witness a raising of a spiritually dead man or a woman back to life. It's not enough to see a life changed by the power of the living God. No. Witnessing a miracle does not necessarily convince someone that Jesus is the only way whereby a man must be saved. It takes the power of God to change a person's heart so they can cry out to the Savior for salvation. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that's what it takes. Lastly, the crowd had the right proclamation. The crowd had the right king. The crowd had the right witness. And they also had, which is our fourth and final point, the right prophecy. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And if you remember back in chapter 11 of John, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, some of those who witnessed that miracle, they saw the miracle, they saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. They went right to the Pharisees, like little tattletales, right to the Pharisees. <laughs> and they told the Pharisees what Jesus had done. I, I sometimes, I got to be honest, sometimes I have, when I read the scriptures and I, See that people actually saw a dead man who was dead four days come out of the tomb. That they would run to the Pharisees and tell him not fall down at Christ's feet and worship him. And then I have a hard time with the Pharisees wanting to kill Lazarus who was just raised from the dead. I mean, I, I have a hard time with that. Maybe because my mind has been redeemed. Maybe if I was not saved and unredeemed and an unregenerate heart and mind, maybe I would have thought just like them. And that's the way unregenerate people think. That's the depth of sin in hearts. This made the Pharisees frustrated and angry. And they thought that if they let Jesus continue these great miracles, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans, oh God forbid, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's what they were concerned about. So from that day, it says in chapter 11, they plan to put 
Jesus to death. Jesus knew this. This was planned from all eternity. However, this enormous crowd hailing Jesus as king made the plans of the Pharisees impossible. Because here Jesus comes into the city. The Pharisees see him, but the crowd is in such a frenzy that they're afraid. They're afraid. And I could hear the deep frustration of the Pharisees in these words. You see that you are gaining nothing. I mean, here it is a few days before Passover. Thousands and thousands of Jews flocking to Jesus. The Pharisees wanting to arrest him, but they can't during the feast or the people may riot. As Mark's gospel tells us in chapter 14. And now it seems like they turn on each other. You see, we're getting nowhere. Their effort to stop Jesus, to stop his influence, seems completely ineffective. Ineffective. Dr. Carson says this. So far as the Pharisees are concerned, Jesus goes from strength to strength, and the political stability becomes more and more fragile. It's as if they threw their arms up in the air in defeat and said, it's totally out of control. The world has gone after them. And there seems to be a double meaning John has in this, in this phrase. Remember back in chapter 11 when the Jewish leaders in their effort to stop Jesus from gaining favor with the people sought a, sought a council, the Sanhedrin? And during this meeting on what to do with Jesus, the high priest Caiaphas basically said, kill him in order to spare our positions and our nation from Roman revenge. That's what he was basically saying. And that's what he meant. But that's not what God meant. God took his words by the power of the Holy Spirit to prophesy the coming atoning, atoning substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. The Pharisee's statement, the world has gone after men, is hyperbole. It's an exaggerated term. The world wasn't, it wasn't literally the world. The term world, cosmos in the Greek, refers to people in general, not everyone in particular. They meant that their efforts to stop Jesus failed and the Jewish crowds are now flocking to him. However, it seemed, it really seems like John wanted his readers to understand the use of the word world to include more than just the Jewish crowds in Jerusalem. And I think for John, the word world, and if you, as you read through the Gospel of John, it just doesn't mean people. Okay, the world for John in his Gospel means it speaks of lost, blind sinners on a planet against his maker. For God so loved the world. What did he love? Lost, blind sinners that were against God. But not just the Jews, but all people from all ends of the earth. In other words, John probably wants his readers to understand this statement. The world has gone after him as a prediction of the gospel spreading throughout the world, which includes the Gentiles. Dr. Gary Berg says in his commentary, it's no accident that in the next episode records characters from the larger Mediterranean world naming some Greeks who are eager to see Jesus. Listen to the very next verse, which we're not going to talk about tonight. John 12, verses 20 to 21. Now among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These were the Gentiles. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda, in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And the next time I speak, we're going to look at the gospel, which didn't come to the Jew only, but to the Gentiles as well. The Greeks are coming. They're coming. <laughs> Anybody Greek here? <laughs> so the Pharisees meant that statement in a negative sense. 
John used it in a positive sense. God is sovereign. And he does what he wants, when he wants. And he could take the evil words of a high priest like Caiaphas, and the frustrated words of the Pharisees, and use them to predict salvation through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. What they meant for evil, God meant it for good. You see, you and I as Christians need to stop being frustrated when the unbelieving world attacks us with words and tries to destroy our character or maybe tries to harm us in some way. Think of Joseph when his brothers tried to get rid of him. Joseph suffered, but God took what his brothers meant for evil and used it for good and elevated them second in the land of Egypt. And he was exalted way above his brothers. So stop worrying. (laughs) And guess what again? What they meant for evil... Well, first of all, people are going to say what they want to say. And they're going to do what they want to do. But God the Father turned that whole situation around, didn't He? What they meant for evil, the Pharisees, the Jews, what they meant for evil, the cross... And the good God used it for has been a blessing to the world ever since. So God is sovereign. When we trust in the sovereignty of God, we worship King Jesus on His terms, not our terms. Let's bring this to a conclusion. Jesus was king, but He was not like any other king who comes with a royal robe, with a crown on His head, and comes riding in on a royal horse. No, Jesus wasn't like that. He came humbly and lowly with meekness. Instead of conquering his enemies by force, he conquered his enemies by dying. Oh yes, Jesus was king, and this king was going to his throne. And this throne was constructed by his enemies. His throne was the cross. And yes, he was wearing a crown, but that crown would pierce his head and cause him great pain. And yes, he was wearing a robe, A robe that his persecutors put on him, but only to mock him. And this king, this different king, was rejected at his first coming. But this king will return one day as king of kings and lord of lords. Not as a meek, humble king. And when this king returns, he's going to destroy his enemy with his fierce and final judgment. Just as he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies... Concerning his first coming, he will also again come again in exactly the manner the scriptures, the scriptures say he will come. So how do we worship King Jesus? As a humble king? Or do we worship him as a victorious king? Both. Both. We worship the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. The one who humbled himself and was gentle and humble in heart. The one who upholds the rights of the vulnerable and the oppressed. And we worship the victorious King of Kings and Lord of Lords in in anticipation of His return. So let's proclaim Hosanna with the correct understanding of who He is and why He came. Let's worship the King, but according to the Scriptures, not our own liking. When we witness the spiritual raising of a person who was dead in trespasses and sins and is now alive in Christ, let it convince us that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. And if we already know Him, let it, let it draw us into a deeper worship of Him. 
And finally, let us prophesy correctly that he came as a humble king, yes, but he, that he can change a person's life and is returning victoriously for those whose lives were changed by the humble King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ came the first time as a humble king so that we might live. We thank you, God, that he's coming back in power and in glory. We thank you that we worship him as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But we also worship him as the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world. Help us to always worship Christ by the correct view of what your word declares. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.